This is Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future, bringing you the latest insights into leadership in partnership with the International Leadership Association. Our guest today is Jonathan Reams, and this interview is part of the International Leadership Association series based on the conference in Geneva, Switzerland. So Jonathan, welcome. Please tell our guests a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Maureen. I'm American-born, Canadian-raised, Norwegian resident for the last 15 years. I studied physics and philosophy, was in a university dropout, went back 12 years later and started studying humanities and social sciences. And when I went to go back into the classroom instead of doing correspondence, I talked to a Jesuit priest at Gonzaga University where I was looking to go and take some classes in person. And he said, we have this new master's degree in organizational leadership you might be interested in. And this booming voice in my head said, do that. And so that kind of set the course for the next while. So I did a master's in organizational leadership and then a PhD in leadership studies at Gonzaga. Did various things for the next few years until I got offered a position here at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology, teaching in both a master's in organizational leadership and a master's in counseling program. Let's talk about our subject, which is maturing leadership, how adult development impacts leadership. And this topic really brings together both leadership and psychology. And as part of the foundation for the conversation is the book you edited and contributed to called Maturing Leadership that I had an opportunity to read and found it to be really helpful in part because you and I work in the same space of leadership maturity. And that has a very specific meaning, not just we get smarter as we get older, but a very technical term of how leadership maturity unfolds. So let's start with the conversation about what is leadership maturity for people who aren't in this field of study. To do that, let me maybe take a step back. Part of it is that my bachelor's degree is in history and mostly Western intellectual history. And so I'm very much aware of the importance that our history and past has on this. And for me, this came about from a young age where I developed a strong interest in consciousness. That led to a variety of kind of personal practices, reading and so on. And then when I was combined with the master's in organizational leadership, these two things came together. But consciousness is one of those words like love. You know, it means everything and nothing. And so the more I started digging into the field of consciousness studies, the more I started looking for more granular and precise ways to talk about it, models that got into this in a way that made sense. And this is when I came across Robert Keegan's work, Bill Forward's work, Brian Hall's work, a number of other figures in the field who basically had looked at human behavior and, like any good researcher, tried to understand differences. What many of these people in this field came up with is a way of categorizing differences that had a specific trajectory or sequence to it. So my favorite example is we all have experienced to varying degrees or see kids go through learning arithmetic. And before that, they can't because their minds don't work that way. The world is magical and mythical. And to use basic arithmetic requires a certain structure of thinking that is logical. 
And then eventually you can do multiplication, division, these kind of things. But you don't teach an eight-year-old algebra because algebra requires a structure of thinking that allows you to put any number for x. And that's an abstraction. And that doesn't emerge till later in life, 11, 12, 13, whatever. There's something happens to the way we think. It matures to allow you to not only do arithmetic, but now also do algebra. Maybe. I mean, not everybody's good at it, but the concept is there. There's something that happens to our thinking where we mature into a way that enables us to kind of function in society. Many of these researchers then saw that while there were many models of child development, developmental psychology has primarily been the domain of child and infant development and so on. There were people that noticed these differences between how adults behave, perform, thought, talk, reflected, and so on, could be categorized, and that some of these ways seem to have specific forms of complexity that they could think, connect. A simple way of looking at that is to say that many people have a fairly binary or linear causality. They need to think in this or that, either or, this caused that, a simple story. And other people say, no, it's about systems. It's about group dynamics. It's about the relationships between multiple people that's influencing things, not just one point of causality. And that shift to be able to go from thinking in these linear ways to taking more perspectives and considerations into your way of seeing things is a form of maturity. So that's the more specific meaning here. It's the ability to think more complexly, to perform more integrative cognitive tasks. Then, of course, what I became fascinated by is how do you apply this to the impact it has on leadership? Just to reiterate then, we see childhood development. I'll use the example of terrible twos. Kids start to say no, and then they move into different phases, that we do that as adults, and there are capabilities that unfold as we mature. And the examples you gave were high school math, that those also then continue to evolve as we age into our professional lives. Sure. A simple way to look at that in another thing is that as you talk about terrible twos, Young kids tend to be egocentric, not in an unhealthy way, but in a way that simply they're trying to integrate the world and it's all about what is in their immediate sphere. So they're naturally egocentric. But at a certain stage, you know, whether it's 9 or 10 or 12 or something, they start to become more influenced by their peers. They start to build their identity around how others see them. They start to notice and care about others' perspectives. And that's really important to develop because it allows people to become socialized into societal norms. What is it to be a good student, a good teacher, a good parent, a good employee? And at the same time, then, people are expected implicitly often to be able to go beyond the kind of scripts they've been given and socialized into to start to combine things in creative new ways and think for themselves. And that implicit demand is what Robert Keegan talked about in his book, In Over Our Heads, The Mental Demands of Modern Life. 
And for leaders, of course, this is almost an implicit definition or association. Somebody who is leading needs to be thinking for themselves for the most part. They need to be able to take many complex factors and decide what to do, how to influence others, how to support movement towards a goal. And that requires this way of thinking for oneself and not being overwhelmed by the concerns about what others think. You need to take those into consideration, but not to be governed by them. As you continue to unpack this, at at each point, you're talking about additional capabilities that come online from being in a socialized context where fitting in is most important. And then as we mature, I have to fit in and also think for myself. And then the next level, I need to focus on achieving results. And then the next level, I start to think about systems. And then the next level, I'm thinking embedded systems and long-term strategy. And that may be a way to boil down, but directionally, we move through those stages, but not everyone continues to move. Right. The more I have learned about this, so I would say I encountered these ways of looking at things through what is known as kind of the field of ego development. How does our sense of self mature? I've also, in the last 10 years or so, come across a whole strand of developmental psychology that isn't focused on the ego, but is more focused on cognitive skills. And how do these arise out of how we learn sensory motor, physical skills? How do those become represented in our thinking so we don't have to enact everything, but we can talk about it in a shorthand? How do those evolve into more complex representations and then into more generalizable abstractions? And all of these become what I would call the thinking tools of a knowledge economy. I love the phrase, the thinking tools of a knowledge economy. Sounds like more specifically along the cognitive line than ego development. If I'm a complex thinker, it's a prerequisite, but isn't sufficient to be a really good leader. We often make a lot of implicit associations with terminology. For myself, the idea of it's very cognitive can be associated with many things. It can say, well, it's not about emotional intelligence. But the more you study neuroscience, developmental psychology, you see that the impact of emotion and affect is central to understanding where our attention goes. So cognitive in this sense is much more holistic. It is not what I would say intellectual or abstracted from feelings. It's much more understanding that our physiology, our emotions, and our thinking are all an integrated system. And how that system is able to perform is always influenced by the context we're in, as well as our own skills and capacities and so on, and that we will develop these in very intricate kind of neural webs, you could say. People will develop specific knowledge and expertise and experience and internalize that so it's habituated and automatic, and they can perform certain things at a very high level, but in other areas, not so much. Thank you for clarifying that, because for me, the emotional and physical or physiological are all part of that equation. So when you said cognitive, I was thinking more IQ. There were certainly people I've interacted with that are IQ brilliant. I would not trust them to fill in the blank, walk my dog, do whatever, because 
leading is more than just intellectually thinking through something. It is also the ability to relate and be a specific way that will resonate with the audience and those things we associate with leadership. Right. I just had a chapter published in a book uh, that's meant to be an extension of Ronald Heifetz's approach to adaptive leadership. In that, I really focus on this aspect of how does our beingness, our presence, create a space? And this is then, to me, related to things like psychological safety. People often have a kind of intuitive sense of whether they feel safe or trust a person. And this is super important for leading people, because if they don't trust you, if they don't feel safe, they're not going to go there. When we talk about the neuropsychology of it, it's also related to neurocardiology. So the fact is that we have a brain in our heart, about 40,000 neurons. It performs many high-level functions in terms of coordinating multiple systems in our whole body, mind, emotional apparatus. It also has been measured to have an electromagnetic field 5,000 times stronger than that of our brain. Say why that matters. Why it matters is that people who can be IQ, intellectually brilliant, if their heart is not coherent, the energy waves, the carrier waves of their intellectual brilliance will have a disconnect with people's embodied emotional felt sense of that person. They may have all the right words and good arguments, but you still feel something's not right. The heart is a very sensitive sensor that picks up these signals. And although people cultivate that to varying degrees, we're all impacted by it. And so for leadership, it's super important because well, my favorite quote in Otto Scharmer's Theory U is from Bill O'Brien, that success of an intervention is primarily due to the interior condition of the intervener. So that means how I feel about the people I'm doing it with and about the intervention? Oh, it goes much deeper than that. <laughs> this kind of interior condition is mostly unconscious or automatic. So if you say how I feel about or think about, that's very prefrontal cortex. It's very abstracted. But the energy that a person puts out is not something you consciously turn on and off very easily. You just kind of have who you are and the way you are being in the world. And so we see that certain leaders who have the ability to inspire people, put them at ease, get them to kind of do anything for a cause, have been able to combine this sense of what I would talk about sometimes as a coherent sense of self, that, that there is an integrity between how they are in their deepest innermost recess and how they speak and act. Is this the work of heart math, the idea that our heart field can extend to as much as eight feet? That's right. Then I can sense and I may be well-refined or not well-refined, I may just feel anxious because there's a bunch of energy in the room that's incoherent. Or I may feel calmed because I'm standing next to someone who is highly coherent. But I can feel that, and even more, I can work with it. I've used HeartMath stuff for 20 years. I published an article for Roland McCready, their director of research in the journal that I edit. Yeah, it's, it's very much taking that research in neurocardiology and saying it has big implications 
And this is part of also talking about leadership in terms of maturity, not just about intellectual complexity, not just about emotional intelligence, although that's getting closer, but it's talking about this physiological integrative system having this coherence to it. Let's go a little bit more to heart math because it's something we haven't talked about on the podcast at all. And probably most people don't know the organization. And you're talking about neurophysiology, which is a term that we don't talk about. I want to make sure that listeners don't hear some woo-woo, you got to have your heart aligned, but that there is hard science behind why it matters, how to improve it, and how it correlates with leadership. Yeah. First of all, uh, neurocardiology, science, is the field of how does our autonomic nervous system, the brain, and all this kind of stuff function. And neurocardiology then is applying that to the neural system in our heart. And there's been research on this for a few decades now. And I would make a distinction between the heart math, which is a program that has tools for biofeedback. So, you know, now you get your heart rate variability. This is the big thing. It's on smartwatches now. It's in all these apps because they understand that this is a good measure of something important in our entire body's physiological, emotional, cognitive state. And what it looks like is what is the beat-to-beat variability? You know, if we're having 60 beats per minute with our heart, then you can say there's one beat per second. But it's not exactly one a second, 1.1, 0.98. You know, it, it varies a little bit. But what does that variability indicate? And some of the research that's been done looks at What are different emotional states? What does anger do? What is appreciation do? What do different kinds of states of being look like in relation to this beat-to-beat variability in our heart? How is that an indicator or sign of this? The feedback we can get helps us understand, can we focus our breathing our attention, our feelings to be more coherent. And they have very specific things they mean by coherence because it shows up in nice sine waves. The, the shape of the curve is, is very clear when you have this coherent state. If you have anger or fear or anxiety, all of these kind of things get very jagged. The research institute, so HeartMath has a public-facing entity that sells these biofeedback tools, does training courses. They have research on improved cognitive performance, like test scores for students and so on. Uh, it's been used in prison systems, I believe, to help inmates regulate emotions. And this is one of the big things I see that is important, is giving people tools to help them regulate emotion because emotion regulation is one of the most fundamental skills anybody can learn. And this has something to do with maturity. Coming back to that theme for a moment, if you are subject to your emotions, that person made me angry, I'm raging about this, and, and, and you're justified fully in it because of what somebody else said or did, then you're lost. It's very hard to lead because you're being led by the judgments and interpretations you're making about what those people did and what it means and how it impacts you. Being able to notice that there is an interpretive process 
a story that it probably came into us very young when we're egocentric. Everything's about us. So everything that happened around us, we internalized as a self-narrative and make associations so that any event or situation or person that resembles or triggers an association triggers the emotion. And then we externalize and say, they made us feel. When the reality is, no, it's our interpretation has caused a certain cascade of events to give these feelings. And of course, we feel it in our body, so it feels very real. But there is a process behind that. What heart math is able to do is give people biofeedback that shows them when this is going on. And you can monitor how you're regulating your thoughts and emotions and see direct feedback on it. And for leaders, this is super important because if you can't regulate that, you have little chance of being able to be sensitive, empathetic, taking other people's concerns into consideration. You'll be blinded by all these emotional noise. I'll share a little bit about my own experience because I bought the heart math regulating the thing where you stick your finger in it. And I would meditate with my laptop on my lap and monitor my heart rate, which that in and of itself probably sounds a little over the top. Uh, but it was amazing. I had been meditating for 20 years, so I wasn't new to this. Just normal meditation, my heart waves were not resonant. It took a very specific kind of resonance meditation to address that specific heart coherence. So when I am with people, I can create an environment that they feel a, a sense of coherence rather than my anxiety about being around people. Great. That's a great example. And when I hear that story, this is something you've noted. It's a form of maturity. I can show you tons of scientific papers you know, and research that's been going on around this for a while. It's also now going into elite athlete performance, things like that. My wife has a smartwatch and now, you know, it's part of the Fitbit premium thing. You get heart rate variability scores. So I know that technology has been around for a while. You started by talking about cognitive maturity being not only IQ, but emotional and physiological. This specifically being about the heart. What else should we be thinking about as we consider what does leadership maturity mean or look like? That's a big can of worms. I would say that there's a number of components of that. Some of this has to do with what we've talked about in terms of just the ability to create a space in which people can do work. And then by that, I mean, like Ronald Heifetz talks about, the work of questioning beliefs, traditions, assumptions, because leadership is associated basically with helping people change. Any growth or development means also leaving behind something and adopting something new. But out of all the things that are there, you know, 98% of it will stay the same, but what's the 2% that needs to change? Or what am I going to lose if that's there? When people have to confront that and go through that process, they need a holding environment and coherent leadership or mature leadership can withstand the kind of emotional turbulence that people will go through when undergoing that kind of adaptive work to help their community, their organization, their society tackle tough questions, deal with difficult issues. So that's 
very much about the space-holding kind of part of it. But the other part that I think is important and that many of the chapters of this uh, edited anthology go into are looking at various frameworks and models of this maturity that say there's also something about these thinking tools because the language we use to communicate can open up spaces or close them down. So if a leader is talking and you just feel that it's inspiring, it's, it's inviting you to be curious, there's something that they're saying that makes you want to hear more or question things, that's opening up a space. But if the leader is saying things in a way that feels overly simplistic, if you feel they're not getting their head around the, the nuances of the issue, the shades of gray or the complexities of it, then you maybe don't feel as comfortable or rate, have some concerns. Are they able to address this issue and think it through, make well-informed and well-considered decisions? So part of this maturity then is can a leader, or especially now, we need to think more in terms of collective leadership because any one individual can't get their head around all the complexities. So you need to kind of have almost like a hive mind. You know, you need a team of people to bring in different experiences and perspectives, but have the skillfulness to understand how to give and take, how to collaborate, how to associate, how to build on things. What you're looking for is the ability to have a larger and larger set of contextual factors taken into consideration. So it's not just who's to blame, who's the bad guy, let's fire him, let's get rid of him, let's go to war with him, do whatever. But what are the cultural or organizational structural systems that people are simply acting out? The reward systems reward this kind of behavior. So why are we blaming people for doing the things that we designed a system to reward? So being able to take those more complex considerations to be able to hold multiple ones of them in relation to each other, understand that they're dynamically shifting and moving, and then consider where to intervene and how to intervene in the system, that's a, a fairly complex set of parameters to be doing. And done poorly, we as leaders do damage. One of my favorite books is by the physicist David Bone. It's called Thought as a System. And in there, he starts out saying, well, what we notice is there's a pattern. We encounter problems. So what do we do? We think about them and we create solutions. And then a little while later, we have new problems. So what do we do? We think about them again, and we create more solutions. But we don't notice that the reason these other problems often come up are because of the limitations or incoherences in the thinking we applied in the first place. That makes me want to circle back. You talked about Ron Heifetz's adaptive leadership, but we haven't defined that for our listeners. So can you give a quick, what does it mean, adaptive leadership? Heifetz takes this as a metaphor from biology. So evolutionary adaptation, the way Darwinian adaptation and so on. But it basically says that as contexts or environments change to survive, there needs to be adaptation. 
in whatever genetic or evolutionary you know adaptations happen some small change enables a species to thrive more in a new environment than others. And so they tend to reproduce and survive, and the adaptation sticks. Using that metaphor, Heifetz says, in our society, in our organizations, in our communities, there are all of these complex constellations of energies, challenges, and issues, and people would like to make the world a better place. And yet, they disagree on what that means or how to do it. What do we need to change or adapt to help our community thrive, to help our healthcare system function, to help our electoral system or political dialogue be more functional? All of these require change, adaptation. The challenge is people often kind of back away and say, no, 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 I don't want to change. They need to change. Or they say, what to change? You know, it's like everything's up for grabs suddenly and there's no ground under your feet and you don't know where you stand. So part of this is helping people understand what's in balance that needs to change and what's stable and isn't going to change. And people often forget that. So part of the leader's job is to help people go through the process of looking at difficult issues and deciding together, having you know healthy discourse to say, yeah, what kind of ways we did things in the past aren't serving us now. And just because we did them in the past doesn't mean it's the way we should continue to do them. But people build identities around this. Uh-huh. It related work, you know, I use Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy's immunity to change process a lot, which is a way of helping people see that they have aspirations. And yet the reason they're aspiring to those things is because they're not doing them now. And but why? And then finding through a, a very clever process that we have other things that we also value that are in tension with the aspirations. And that these things that kind of hold our behavior and avoidance of change in place are built on beliefs, assumptions, you know, things we've internalized about how the world is, or if I do this, that person's going to hit me, or or I'll get fired, or I won't be popped, or whatever it is. And it helps us take that from being unconscious and automatic to being something we can reflect on. And this is a lot of what Heifetz's adaptive leadership is about. How do you create environments for people to collectively reflect on what has been holding them in place to be able to disentangle the different threads holding their sense of identity and values and so on and say, well, yeah, maybe that was the case then, but maybe it's not the case now, or maybe... I misinterpreted this, or the only way I could make sense of it at the time, and because it was traumatic, it stuck, and now I've got to unstick it. For us to address some of the complex issues we're facing right now, we actually have to change ourselves. So the idea that the problem solves me as much as I solve the problem, it may be unlearning. In most cases, as I'm taking on something new, I am also letting go, and often that's not a skill, it's inside of me a meaning-making. So I used to attribute value to something, and I will 
calculate its value differently. I just got off a conversation with someone talking about change in the idea of delegating versus collaborating. Instead of me as the leader telling people what to do, I might collaborate with them in identifying how to solve a problem. It's a subtle difference, but the experience of the person being delegated to where they have little voice versus significant voice, their experience of engagement and involvement is is significant. And yet it seems like it's just semantics, but the way it's executed is dramatically different. To me, that's a, a bit of the problem solving that individual, not just wrapping different words around, I'm going to tell you what to do. So I like to use the Pogo cartoon, you know, the summation of this long journey he went on and he sees things, the swamp in Washington or whatever it was, right? And he says, we have met the enemy and it is us. And this is one of my favorite phrases. Adaptive challenges are not problems for us to solve, but they are problems that can solve us. And solving us is, as you say, this kind of neural pruning. So we have these neural networks things that, you know, automatically there's neural pathways, neurons that are fired together, wired together, and get habituated. And how do we see that we need to prune some of those? They're not helpful anymore. They're not useful. So unlearning is important. And learning is probably as synonymous with leadership as anything. But to the collaboration point, one of the assessments I use looks at different, you could say, levels of maturity of collaboration has some very simple word changes, looking at how people talk about this and write about it. And you can see that at some point, people think of collaboration with others as using them as sources of information. At another point, they are more active contributors. But the move to being a genuine collaborator is yet another step. And an analogy that I used sometimes was, okay, so imagine you have a game board in front of you. You are sitting there with all these pieces trying to figure out where they go. And you ask people, what piece do you have? And you take their piece and you put it on the board. And that's helpful. People feel like they were involved a bit. But what if you ask that person where they think the piece should go? That's a much more dynamic and active collaboration because you're inviting them to not only provide the information for you to do something with, but to actively connect it and contextualize it in a way that they see the system you're looking at. Now, what that risks for people is a loss of control, so to speak. I'm not the one putting the piece on the game board, right? I have let go of that and see what happens. But if you have this maturity, those emotional triggers are something that may come up, but you can regulate them easier and you can move from the fear of a loss of control to a curiosity about, ah, what could I learn? What new insights or contextual perspectives might this person's placement of this piece of information bring to me that I don't have? And yet all of that will feel potentially uncomfortable unless I have underlying trust in the person. We have some shared language and understanding and alignment around how we work and what we value. That takes a lot of energy to get to and back to then our sense of coherence. How do I cohere with people 
especially if they can feel either my lack of coherence or my lack of coherence with them. And this is where the notions of safe-to-fail experiments are really helpful. When you're in a complex adaptive system, there's more that you don't know than you know. So this is like to Snowden's Kinefin framework. There's things that are predictable, and on the other side, there's things that are less predictable and can be very complicated, but we know how all the pieces, if we put all these resources together, we'll get this result. Complex is we don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And most social systems are more complex, and there's less predictability. So in those kind of settings, if you understand that this is what you're dealing with, and this is very much Heifetz's distinction between adaptive challenges and technical problems, it's the same kind of distinction, then what you need to do often is make little probes to learn how the system will respond. And the idea of safe to fail is, okay, I'll trust this person on this to see what happens because it's not a high risk thing. I can learn something. They can learn something maybe. Maybe together we can figure out how to work together better within the context that we're in. But you don't risk the whole thing with one shot like that. I love Snowden's work that many of the issues we're addressing now are complex and tying it back to Heifetz in complex systems, we don't have enough information and we're part of the problem, potentially. So we need to solve us and concurrently address the challenge, which goes back to then the idea that I will fail, that I am going to be more the scientist than the expert. And I am in a place of experimentation because we're creating solutions that didn't previously exist. Yeah, and that we need to learn. Leaders often have this socialized um, image or modeled image that being a leader means you have all the answers, you're the expert, you make all the decisions, you carry the weight on your shoulders. Somebody I know in Hong Kong had this good image. He talked about spiky leadership. And I felt it was a very good metaphor, and he had some very good ways to illustrate it. He talked about the death of Superman and the birth of the Avengers. So Superman is the lone hero, does everything and takes care of everything. The Avengers are always a team where people have individual strengths and they also have flaws. And so they have to combine in the right way so that their strengths come together and their flaws don't break them apart in order to collectively address this. So the idea of spiky leadership is saying we need collective teams of leadership being enacted throughout our communities, throughout our organizations and teams, rather than focalizing it in a single individual. And as Heifetz says, the problem then is, of course, Everybody gives you authority to act on their expectations. As soon as things don't go as expected, you're the scapegoat. Does he have a solution for that? (laughs) My sense of all of this is that this is the human condition. You know, we are here. It's kind of like a big schoolhouse. Are we going to figure out how to function, how to survive, how to cope with our own creativity, how to deal with the unintended consequences of our effects. So, for instance, I was writing something and discussing with my wife the other day. We're trying to build some tools to support building 
these kind of leadership skills or, or capacities, thinking tools for the uh, knowledge economy. In doing that, we are looking at, you know, what is, what is the starting position? What do you need to kind of get right first? And so the heart math sufferance is getting this inner coherence is part of this. And we're looking at this in terms of another piece of work, which I like a lot, the Arbinger Institute. So leadership and self-deception, the anatomy of peace, and currently the outward mindset are very easy to read books that provide a very powerful, simple message. It has to do with, is your attention hijacked into protecting a sense of identity? It going back to David Bohm's thought of the system, uh, he is somebody, for people who don't know, that created the field of plasma physics in the 40s during his PhD at Berkeley. It was on the Manhattan Project, was kicked out of the U.S., by the McCarthy stuff, wrote the best textbook on quantum physics and then wrote two papers critiquing the Copenhagen interpret of quantum physics and developed a holographic metaphor for understanding how the universe and the world work. And Einstein considered him his intellectual heir. And he's influenced Peter Senge and MIT, the, all these kind of people profoundly. So near the end of this work, what he sees is that Having an identified sense of being is the root of the incoherence in our whole system of thought. The thinking, the emotions, the physiology, the action, the incoherence stems from being identified as a sense of being compared to a creative sense of being, something dynamic and constantly evolving and revealing itself. So from a physics perspective, quantum physics specifically, that idea that the observer influences what's happening by the fact that they're observing. Is that connected to my identity as this? I've got another friend of mine that we published a paper on physics too that looked at relationality in quantum physics, how subatomic particles are actually in relationship, and now that moves to the biological level and so on as well. So it's a fractal principle in a sense. It exists at all these levels. What I was moving towards is this notion that when we have this identified sense of being, anything that is a threat to our identity, the construction of beliefs, assumptions, values, all these things, anything that's seen as challenging that can trigger fear. And fear will very quickly work to defend that system, defend its own existence, in essence. And it will then create what Arbinger talks about as self-deception. Because right away it hides itself from the system so that it doesn't know that this is going on. What you get is justifications, good reasons why you do something that is incoherent. Compared to what they talk about as the outward mindset, which is like Martin Buber's I-thou relationship, you actually see and listen to the other, not to their ego, not to their superficial whims and desires, but to the deep essence of what is called for by their humanity, then you can see at some point that what often goes on is we give off these subtle signals, like you said with the heart math thing, you know, they can measure eight feet away physically with instruments. We can sense that and we give off energy and we teach people how to treat us. 
We give them verbal clues, body language clues, tone of voice clues. We communicate how our identity is built up and how they should see and interact with us. And that is often when it's driven by limiting or incoherent beliefs and assumptions is detrimental to us. But it gives us great evidence to justify these beliefs and this identity. So change is very difficult when it's that deeply embedded. And the work in Heifetz's sense of leadership, for me at least, is helping people disentangle these threads that hold this sense of identity in place so that solving us is really about little thread by thread taking these things that are holding us in place and holding fear in place and replacing that with a curiosity. Where did that come from? What's it about? What gift does it bring? What can I learn from it? How can I let it go? How can I incorporate it when it's appropriate and put it aside when it's not appropriate? And all of that is connecting, as you're saying, to my sense of self. I'm good because, or I'm effective, or I'm desirable, or whatever. Right. When you go way off the deep end, like I do on occasion, you see that, and this you know, also comes from, of course, Buddhist thought, for instance, that the sense of self is the root cause of illusion. And this is this notion of when we're identified with this and think that that's all we are, then we have to make that survive. So I've tried sometimes talking about the virtuality of self. How can we treat this kind of thought-created ego or entity that's a limited version of the essence of who we actually are, but our attention is captured by it. And with that, be able to think of ourselves like a movie character or an avatar in a game. We go into the movie, we lose ourselves in the character, we learn something, we empathize, we have the human drama, and we gain some experience vicariously. But we walk out of the movie theater and we're not that character. Some people go a little too far, but you know... But And in the gaming world, you go in and you're playing whatever it is and you have your avatar and you go in and you interact with others and you learn things and you do things together and you step out of that because it's not who you are. What if we could treat ourself in the same way as a way to conceptually loosen the hold of identity? Is there a practice that you personally use to do that, because I do something in meditation that I think directionally is similar. Yeah, I've had a spiritual practice for over 40 years, daily morning kind of spiritual exercises or contemplative practices. That, for me, has been the essence of fueling this kind of continuous learning and continuous ability to let go of and get out of the way, give myself out of the way of what is being called for in the context that I'm in to enable something new. So when I'm teaching in the classroom, little by little as I got comfortable, I would let go of the agenda and let go of things and try to listen to the questions the students had and what was implicit in and how could I respond to that and I would find things I'd never thought of before coming up out of myself and out of the students. And this is much more fun than just spouting off something that I've written or heard about a long time ago. I do all the prep for the class so that I'm ready and that allows me to let it go. Yeah. If I didn't do the prep and I just showed up, I would be a little anxious about being unprepared. 
people think that improvisation means no preparation, but it's like jazz musicians. You have immense amounts of preparation and background to be able to pull on whatever it is that you can use, but it's the creative combination of different experiences, lenses, perspectives, with the context of what's emerging in between that has this innovative, creative spirit of life in it. It also feels like as you talk about what we take on and what we let go, that there's a sense of ease that comes online when we're able to let go of the fear that if something goes wrong, I'm bad. It's more the improv. All those things are there. As soon as that thought gets triggered, you know, there's certain neurochemicals in the brain that go into the cells in our body and flood it. So we have a physiological feeling. So it must be real because we feel it physically. But if we slow that down and go upstream, we can see these leverage points that, ah, there, there was an assumption, there was an experience that happened back then that I took this way and never processed it, never healed it. You've talked a lot about the physiology of leadership. I don't know that we have had sufficient conversations, we the community, not you and I, about that there's a significant physiological component. And no matter how skilled I am, if my physiology, I'll say, abducts me, I'm flooded with cortisol and adrenaline, it doesn't matter how well I have practiced these tactics. I'm still derailed. Right. And what I think also happens is we're looking at higher leverage skills. So I talked earlier about the importance of emotion regulation, because that's a very high leverage skill. It's upstream. It's like Danella Meadows leverage points in a system. You know, you can go from some very crude details of things up more and more towards mindsets and paradigms and these kind of things. So you're looking to go upstream in terms of what kind of skills are you developing? And this is part of this maturity. It's not just thinking tools, but it's thinking uh -huh. embodiment tools. So it's this whole being integrative system. And how do you have a robustly complete set of skills to monitor your physical health and well-being? Because of course, when we are overly tired and not sleeping enough. I, I read a blog post from somebody who finally said, wow, you know, I thought it was such a badge of honor to sleep four hours a night and be so productive. And then my context changed and I was sleeping eight hours a day. And I'm like, wow, I'm so much more effective. I'm so much more present with others, all these kind of things. So there are many facets of skills that are coming into our awareness of having an impact individual and collectively on this kind of robustness of our way of being in the world. As we wrap up, what viewpoints do you want people to take away from your life's work, right? The, I mean, we're talking about your life's work, everything from writing about physics to leadership to counseling. I got a long ways to go. You know, I started late. I didn't even get a real job till I was 47. For this decade's work, then, Jonathan, out or less, it should be easy to summarize in five bullet points, shouldn't it? That's right. No, I think there's things that I can start writing in my 70s when I will have to retire from the university, and that'll free up some time. I would say breathe, 
reflect, be present. You know, they're mantras I've read them many places. You know, show up, be present, grow up and clean up. Part of the work we do is helping people clean up or prune off the unhelpful things and grow up in terms of building these more mature and robust skills, capacities, beingness, all those things. So none of these things are just about knowing about them. There's a big gap between what we can talk about and gain just knowledge and information about and what it is to actually practice these things. So having opportunities to practice daily practice at all levels, from like you say, the meditative, contemplative, spiritual practice of directing our attention, having the feedback to make it coherent, all the way down to simple interpersonal practices, emotion regulation practices, practices of being able to avoid the temptation for simple stories, to look behind at the nuances of things. There's practices on all those levels. I love that. I'm going to add a couple things that I'm pulling from the conversation. This idea of coherence, that our heart has nerves and that people feel that, and I would say they feel it on Zoom, not just in person, that we can feel the presence of somebody and we need to attend to that as well as the clarity of our thinking. And then this unlearning our identity, that if I'm completely connected to what I do is who I am and that's it, then I have little room to breathe and experiment and I'll say fail, but just that I'm too identified with that outcome. So my wife came up with a good acronym. To fail is the first attempt in learning. Ah, okay. This is a very powerful skill to reframe, reconception, uh-huh. reconfigure. Be undefended. Well, don't be naively undefended. And, you know, I went to University of Gonzaga for eight years, and the Jesuits talk a lot about the discernment of spirits. So don't be naively open and vulnerable. It's okay to learn humility through being humiliated once in a while. Yeah, I try not to be humiliated very often, by the way. But it teaches you humility, doesn't it? Yeah. I have had mine too, and that's what I learned. They were some of the most powerful lessons. You know, Edgar Schein talks about access your ignorance, humble inquiry. And that we live through it, as much as it feels like death. We survive. The ego might feel wounded and might feel it's not going to survive, but we survive because we're not the ego. This has been a brilliant conversation. And I want to close with your encouragement that it's a daily practice, that nobody is brilliant without daily practice. It's not talking about it. It's living these things every day and every interaction that allows us to be brilliant and make the impact we want in the world. Jonathan, where would people find you? (laughs) Okay, I have various places. Uh, JonathanReams.com is just a kind of placeholder I have for videos, talks that I've done, podcasts like this, uh, writings that I've done, then links to a couple of other websites I have, one at the university and I have a couple of consulting companies that I'm co-founder of where we're doing different things. So all that's there. J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-R-E-A-M-S dot com. Now I'll be curious to see if hits go up on my website, you know. (laughs) (laughs) 
it, it's it's really just a convenient place so that people who wanted stuff, I could just point them there and they could go find stuff rather than having to individually send things. So it's not a fancy website by any means, but it has an accumulation of stuff. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you to the International Leadership Association for introducing us to many of their best and brightest and ensuring that this series comes off effectively. Thank you to our listeners. Please put these practices in action. Use what you learned from Jonathan and this conversation to do your own first attempts at learning and keep making an impact. Our partnership with the International Leadership Association made today's interview possible. We hope you found our special guests' insights valuable. I'm Maureen Metcalf. Thanks so much for joining us and for doing your part to be a better leader.